to John chapter 3. What maybe for some of you has been some moment of expectation, wondering when we would get to this most familiar of passages. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 will be our consideration. And you'll be happy to know that 20 years of pastoring has taught me some lessons about my own limitations. And as I began to work on this text during this past week and writing out the sermon in longhand and developing all that is in this wonderful passage, I looked down on Thursday afternoon and realized this is about three sermons. So, as you're listening this morning, fear not. Fear not. We will take this in time. Uh, because we won't be making as fast a headway as you might think we should be in order to get out at a fairly decent hour. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help, and then we'll jump into this beautiful passage of Scripture. Father, help us now as we consider the wondrous, magnificent, incomparable love of God for us. This Father, is your word and it's been spoken so beautifully. We pray that it would find lodging in our minds, in our hearts, and then turn our affections and our will as we turn more and more as this hymn was just sung to Jesus. And that our song would be For all of eternity, Jesus, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. May we find, Father, Your love through Your Son for us in this passage to be fresh and new to us this morning in ways that it has never been as we see it anew. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me back up this morning and read verses 13 through verse 17, if you'll allow me. And then we'll go back to verse 16. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses was lifted up, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whosoever believes will in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The hymns of the church are like great biographers. They're like great archivists. And as you look at the hymns that the church has sung throughout the ages, we find that the church sings about 
that which is most important to her in every age. You can survey church history through hymnody. You can often find the battles that the church fought and the truths that were being championed and exalted in the church in any given age by the hymns that they sang. They tell a story about us. They tell a story about what we believe and what we think is truly important. And though the hymns throughout the history of the church have changed, they have ebbed and flowed, depending on the circumstances that the church faced, there has been an unchanging theme in the hymnody of the church. Hymns in every age sing this one great theme. The love of God. You can find it in the early church. You can find it all the way down to today. It was just a couple of weeks ago that in this very room we sat together and we sang not only to our Lord, but to one another this newer hymn. And we asked the question, how deep the Father's love for us? How deep? And so, Christian, how deep is it? And, and, and you have to be a Christian to be able to answer that. And even as a Christian, you really can't answer that. Because it's deeper than you will ever know. And even in eternity, we'll never know. We'll know more than we know now. But we'll never know because we'll never have the infinite mind of God. We sing the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. So then how do we write of the love of God? If it's greater than tongue or pen can ever tell, how are we going to tell the story? How are we going to accurately get to the bottom of this deep, deep love of God? In an overwhelmed state of grace, we sing the words of Charles Wesley. Amazing love. How can it be? But it's what Wesley wrote in the line after that is so gripping. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, my God, would die for me. John 3.16 stands as a towering monument to that most important truth in all of history. The love of God so great that He gave. Love so great that He gave. Love greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Love so great that we ask the question, how deep is it? How deep is the Father's love for us? The challenge for you and I this morning, as we look at John chapter 3 and verse 16, a verse that many of us have known since before we remembered learning it. 
The challenge for us is to grasp the magnitude of it. Well, we know the words of it. We know the, the trajectory of it. We, we know what it's saying. But to grasp the magnitude of what it is saying is something altogether different. On the one hand, we battle the oversimplification that stems from our familiarity with it. We are guilty, brothers and sisters, and I say this along with you. We are guilty too many times of reciting the verse and really not even knowing what we just recited. And yet the theme of the magnificent love of God ought to require that each of us slow down and word by word reflect on what it is that we're saying here. It is not just great truth. It is not just beautiful truth. It is overwhelmingly magnificent truth. This verse, what John writes about, what Jesus speaks about here, cannot be experienced superficially. You can't just run over John 3.16 and say, this is what it is, now let's move on. Or this is what it is, now do this and then go about your life. It is a verse that ought to arrest you and throw you into the gracious prison of God's overwhelming goodness. It cannot be experienced superficially. It must be considered carefully. And yet on the other hand, is a struggle to explain something that is impossible to fully explain. Here it is to say, slow down and absorb and rest and relish in. And on the other hand, we say, but you'll never really be able to fully do that like you'd like. But you must come to grasp it for yourself. You can't let others, myself or anyone else, try to experience it for you and explain it to you. You must come yourself. Because just as this truth in John chapter 3, verse 16 cannot be experienced superficially, it likewise cannot be experienced vicariously. Parents, we can't taste this for our children. We can't taste this for our neighbors and our friends. We cannot experience for them, as bad as we may want to, what it is to be born again and know the love of God. Jesus does not say, you all must be born again. He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must experience this for yourself. And so we come to John 3.16 with those things before us, those challenges in front of us. And yet we come confidently that the same spirit that Jesus has been speaking of to Nicodemus is present with us still. And he'll open blind eyes. And he'll give hearing to the deaf. And he'll give belief 
to the unbelieving and he will give grace to see and know and experience this magnificent love of God. Now, I want you to notice something with me this morning. As we began back in verse 13. In the preceding verses leading up to John 16, and remember, John 3.16 is not a standalone verse. It's part of a context, and it is still part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And so if we take it out of its context, it loses its force. It loses its power, loses its beauty. And so as we listen to Jesus in leading up to verse 16, we find that Jesus is drawing our gaze not to the benefits of the kingdom or salvation. Notice he doesn't say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, listen, if you'll just believe that I am he, there's a mansion with golden streets waiting for you. Nicodemus, let me go over the HR benefits of heaven and explain all that you get with this package deal. He's not an appliance salesman at Lowe's trying to sell you the warranty. He's not sitting there trying to get Nicodemus to buy based on all that Nicodemus can get. Rather, what does he do? He points Nicodemus to himself. He doesn't go about and on, on and on. Now, are there benefits? Are there the, the glories of heaven? Is the believer? Absolutely. But is that what Jesus is trying to sell here now? Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to himself. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, No, Nicodemus, here I am. Here's some truths. And now, Nicodemus, here's step one, step two, step three. Do these perfunctory things, and you're in. Doesn't do that to Nicodemus. He's not soliciting human response. Rather, he is simply, again, even in verse 16, pointing Nicodemus to himself and to the love of the Father for him. He's been doing it beginning in verse 9 all the way down through verse 15. He is pointing, 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 exalting the Son who has been lifted up, exalted. And now in verse 16, he simply begins to elaborate all the more on that great theme. The theme of Jesus Christ. Given by the love of God. And so, This morning and over the next two sermons that follow this in John chapter 3, we find the foundations for what one commentator says is the magnitude of God's love. The magnitude of God's love. Now we live in an interesting city. There's always something going on, it seems. There's new construction always around Midland and one of the things I do like to do is as I drive around and I see these foundations being poured 
it's fun to try to imagine what's going to sit on top of that. How big is that thing going to be? What's that going to look like? And, and and there have been times when you drive by and you, you drive past something like that and you go, oh, that's what it is? And then there's other times, right, you drive by and you go, wow! Who could imagine that? And then you remember that would never have happened had there not been a point and a place and a time when it was just concrete footers rebar and a slab there has to be foundations before we can get to the beauty of the the structure in its full form and jesus is giving us those foundations and even in the foundations they are beautiful can you imagine what it's like to grasp the whole picture the whole building let's begin Remember that this is, as I mentioned earlier, still part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. That's the context of John 3.16. It is still part of that conversation. And let me just break this down for you, if I may. And if you're taking notes, this might be helpful for you. Beginning in John chapter 3, verse 1, and down through verse 8, Jesus demonstrates God's sovereign action toward men in order to save them. He gives the perspective from God's vantage point of what it takes and how it is that a sinner is saved. Then in verses 9 through 15, Jesus changes. He takes the same coin and he turns it over to examine the other side and said, now this is man's necessary response to what God has already done in salvation for him. And then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus shows us how those two overarching truths are welded together and how they fit together. And so I want you to remember that paradigm as we look at, (coughs) excuse me, verses 16 through 21 as we finish out this portion of our study. And so this morning, I simply want us to understand the foundation of of the Father's motivation. Okay, the foundation of the Father's motivation. And then we'll go back in weeks to come and we will talk about the foundation of the Father's action and then ultimately the foundation of the Father's purpose. But this morning we begin with His motivation. Now, as we begin looking at John 3.16, For God so loved the world... That's really as far as we'll get this morning. For God so loved the world. If there has been a consistent and fundamental mistake in understanding this verse, (coughs) and you might wonder, how in the world could you actually get this verse wrong? You can. Just like any verse. You can get it wrong. But if there has been a consistent fundamental mistake in understanding this verse, here it is. Are you ready? It is this that we place the emphasis of salvation not on God's love towards sinners, but in man's response to that. John 3.16 is not about what we do. 
It's about what God has done. And that's an important distinction. And now it is not to say that it, man mustn't believe. Man must believe. But that's not what Jesus is getting to in this particular verse. He is so front-loading it that by the time we get to the end of it, we're going to ask the question, how can you not believe? Jesus is not saying, no, let me just tell you why you have to believe. Jesus is telling you why it's impossible, really, if you understand who he is, not to believe. It points to himself. How do I know that? Well, Jesus never issues an imperative for Nicodemus to do anything in this verse. He never says, now Nicodemus, do this, do this, do this. He is simply giving truth. Truth that will be responded to, truth that must be responded to, but that truth must be built on a foundation, and that foundation is the Father's motivation. Jesus states facts, but he does not yet summon. He states facts that will become the evidence for a response for which all men will be liable. Every man must give an account for what we do with the truth that Jesus spells out in John 3.16. We must give an account for what we do with the foundation of the Father's motivation. That is His magnificent love. It will be a necessary response. But that, again, is not what Jesus is yet building upon. The response is like the roof of the house, but there is so much under the house that must be there before the roof can be put on. Justification is appropriated by faith God's righteousness that is credited to us, our salvation, is appropriated by the vehicle, by the means of faith, but it is not faith that saves us. It is God who saves us. And we must, as Jesus is trying to do, get Nicodemus to look at him. After all, Nicodemus has plenty of religious credibility. He can say, I've done this. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've believed this, I've believed this. And Jesus says, you may have done all of that, but you've never looked at me. You've never looked at the one who has been sent down that he might be lifted up. And that, Nicodemus, is what you must do. You must consider the foundation. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace, that's the cause of salvation, by grace you are saved through the vehicle, the means of faith delivering you into that grace. Joining you into God's work. But it is still grace that saves you. It is still God that saves you. It is God who keeps you. And so what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to do, what we must realize and do ourselves this morning, is know what we are believing. Can I say it more accurately? To say we must know whom we are believing. 
and why we believe it. The emphasis is being placed upon the character, the motivating power, and the action of the Father. For God so loved the world. You know who's the subject of the verse, right? I know school just started back. God is the subject. He is the one acting here. For God so loved the world. It's not Nicodemus' response. It's not your response. That is the cause of your salvation. That's merely the response to the cause. The cause is the overwhelming love of God. I began this morning by speaking of the hymns of the church. Cementing, archiving for us what is important. And we, we, we say, and, and I, you know what I hope? I hope that as I said that and as I named some of those hymns, I hope that your mind started going to even more. Because as I started this week thinking about, now what hymns do I put in this introduction? Why, we could be here all day, folks. There's no shortage, there's no end to the hymns that magnify the love of the Father. But imagine this. Imagine that if we believe that our salvation was not by the Father, but by our faith. Imagine how ridiculous we would sound singing hymns of worship around our own faith, praising our own faith. But we don't do that, do we? Who do we praise? The Father? The Son? The Spirit? We sing, oh, love of God. How vast, how pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever more endure as saints and angels song. How silly we would look to sing a hymn to our own faith. Now what do we sing about? We sing about the love of God as the cause. We also don't pray like that. We don't pray to our faith that our faith might somehow save us, do we? Oh great faith, we come to you. We pray, O faith, that you would be strengthened in faith and grant faith upon faith that we might... How ridiculous does that sound? We don't pray for others like that. How do we pray for others who are lost? God, save them. Holy Spirit, reach down, convict them of sin, convince them of Christ, draw them to yourself. God, save them. We don't say, faith saved them. We say, God saved them. Why? Because we believe this, only He can and only He does. And so we pray like we believe that the foundation of our salvation is the foundation of the magnificent love of God for sinners. 
And as I've said to you before, that is where evangelism starts, brothers and sisters. It does not start when we open our mouths to give the gospel. It starts on our knees praying that God would work and go before us and open the ears and the eyes and raise the dead to life that they might hear what we have to say and then respond in belief. The Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. I know I've said it before, but I don't think it can be said too often. That's Jesus' point for the first eight verses. He does things you can't do, Nicodemus. He does things you can't do, Brian. He does things you can't do, believer. But oh, how He does them. Why? For God so loved the world that's why what Nicodemus needs what we need is an understanding of God not just another um, amorphous faith the glory of salvation is that God acts toward us through his son by his spirit The psalmist asks the question, who is man that you would be mindful of him? Let me tell you something, that is a great place to start. God, who am I that you would take thought of me? Who am I that you would care for me? Well, he does. For God, through his son, so loved the world. So Jesus speaks. If we were to literally translate this verse and I think give it a little more punch than what it has been smoothed out in English to read, it would sound more like this, so God. In other words, verse 16 is explanation of verse 15. That comes across very clearly in the original language of Scripture. So God did this. What did He do? He caused His Son to descend. Verse 13. So that He might ascend. Verse 14. So that there was a means by which sinners could be saved. Verse 15. So God did. Verse 16. If the only cure for man's destructive disease of sin is the descending of the God-man, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, so God did. If it is necessary that God provided for you and for I one who would come and reveal salvation so that we had something to believe in, so God did. That is the point that John is recording for us in Jesus' words here. So God did. And when God did, brothers and sisters, eternity was changed. Eternity was changed. Not just your eternity. Our collective 
eternity as the church of Jesus Christ. Think about this. The angels had a new, not only do we have a new song to sing, the angels got a new song to sing. Because what do the angels sing? The glories of salvation. So much that they long to look and they long to experience it for themselves, but never will. And they sing this song. Why? Because God did. He changed eternity. Now I want you to notice something that might seem trivial at this point, but it won't be in the second sermon. The word for or so God here at the beginning of verse 16 is actually grammatically tied to the word that halfway through the verse. God did so that. God just didn't do and then let, you know, random chance take place. God did so that he gave. There was something definitive in what he did. How different this is than than the way we think of love. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who didn't say, I love so much, I'm just going to proclaim my love. You interpret that love however you want. We'll let fate or random chance work that love out. No, no, no. So God did that. Something specific, something concrete. God loved and so did according to, consistent with that love. So God did that. He gave His only Son. One commentator wrote this, God so loved to the extent that he did. God moved and God accomplished. God is not random. God is not impotent. God is sovereignly, powerfully in control of his saving purpose for his people. So God did. So God had a plan. So God executed the plan so that He acted on who He is in this plan and accomplished His purpose. Uh, The same individual wrote this, that in God's economy, His purpose is always realized. I know that's a little soundbite for you to chew on this week. God has never had... Think about this. God has never had had and will never have an unrealized purpose. Everything God has purposed, God has done. Everything. Now we know what it's like to have the frustration of unfulfilled purposes, don't we? How many times do we have purposes? I I can promise you this. I could sit down and within five seconds, you could tell me at least two or three things this past week that you had purpose to do that didn't get done. Every one of us. That's every day. God never has that problem. Everything he purposes, he does. Psalm 115, 
Verse 3, our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He does. God will never lose one whom he has set his love on that we're speaking of here in John 3.16. He will never lose any of those. Oh, brothers and sisters, if there's anything that should make you go to bed tonight on a wet pillow of tears, cried out of joy, in resting on that pillow of assurance, it is this. God never loses anyone whom He has so loved. Ever. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer, says this. In fact, go go to John chapter 17. We're not in a hurry this morning. Just go there. I want you to see it. Underline it. Highlight it. Circle it. Whatever you need to do. Here Jesus speaks in John 3. Here Jesus speaks again in John 17. But it's the same message. Jesus spoke these things. This is His high priestly prayer. This is leading to the cross. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You even as, just as, You gave him authority over all flesh. Now, as we go back to John chapter 3, that is exactly what he has communicated in verse 13. Who else came down that he might go up? Who else has that authority? Nobody. Father, you gave him, back to John 17, 1, you gave him authority over all flesh. I have authority over everything. That Notice the next phrase. That to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. God says, Son, give them eternal life. Now notice what Jesus says. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It, to quote Jesus in just a few chapters, hence from John 17, is finished. I did this. I gave eternal life to all whom you have given me. He didn't miss one. One won't fall away. One cannot be lost. Why? God so loved that he gave and he gave one 
like himself, who was incapable of living with an unrealized purpose. Jesus could not fail. Why? Because the Father's magnificent love is behind all of this. And it is a love that cannot fail. The hymn of reflection played it this morning. Oh, love that will not let me go. I find my rest in thee. That is the foundation of our salvation. The Father's love being His motivation. This powerful act wherein God reached down and saved you, a rebellious, treasonous, creation-destroying, God-rejecting, lie-believing, self-worshipping, Satan-imitating sinner. That's what we all are, let's be honest. We are all of those things and more. (laughs) Yet God in His power, rooted in His love, overcame all of that. It had to come from something far beyond your faith to overcome all of those things. Think about it for a moment. Think about how pervasive and destructive sin is. Look around you. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long in your own experience. I can promise you all of us this morning, no matter how idyllic of a life we think we've had, we all know how destructive sin is. We all know how deceptive it is. We know how wicked it is. We have lived it. We have observed it. We have walked with others in it. We know. Everything that is wrong in this world, sin. Everything that is broken in this world, sin. Everybody at home this morning suffering from this cold that's going around, sin. Not in them, but you you get it. Every fear-inducing thought in our life, sin. Every life-ending, laborious, sad, difficult situation, sin. Nations failing sin. It's pervasive. It's destructive. It is almost indescribable. And yet, we need something bigger than that. And how well has the world done at remedying sin? We are O for all the infinite number of attempts we've made, brothers and sisters. We have a 0% batting average. And it's not as if we didn't get the opportunities. We get them all day long, every day. And we fail, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail. In our flesh. In our own strength. We then need something more powerful, greater, to crush sin. So... 
God loved. You can't. And I can't. And we won't. So, God loved. All that God did is rooted in one thing. His love. All that God is, played out through His love. It is who He is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. You know the last part of that verse. God is love. And if God is love, what is that love like? Think about it for a moment. That love is not like our love. But if God is love, what is that love like? Omnipotent. All-powerful. Unchanging, immutable, eternal, everywhere present, completely perfect in every regard. If God is love, then describe everything that God is, all of the adjectives that we would describe God as being, and slap that onto love and say, that's what His love's like too. Because that's who He is. And with that kind of love, God goes to war with sin. Sin doesn't have a chance. When God's purpose is to love. God's love is unique. It's not like our love. You can't look at John 3.16 and try to describe His love with human metaphors. With human corollaries. Even a parental love breaks down. Because His love alone is unique. It's like trying to describe the Trinity. I can promise you this. Go home this afternoon at lunch around your lunch table Try to describe the Trinity to your children, to your spouse, to your friends. I can promise you this. Sometime within the first two minutes, you will be a heretic. Why? There's no human comparison to the Trinity. You say, well, it's like this. Ah, but it breaks down. The illustration always breaks down, and it breaks down very quickly. Why? You can't compare God to anything. And you can't compare anything that God is, including love, to anything. God's love is not responsive love. Did you hear me? God's love is not responsive love. It is causal love. God is the cause of love. He does not respond in love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it could not be more clear. We love because He first loved us. God did not send Jesus because we loved Him. God didn't send His Son because He thought, now there are people to whom I could entrust my Son. Gordon Ketty says this, God gives His Son for the sake of enemies, not friends. 
Let that sink in. God gives His Son for the sake of enemies, not friends. Paul says it better. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Do I need to remind you of what a sinner is? A treacherous, rebelling, tyrannical, self-seeking, self-worshipping tyrant. Not some little small peccadillo that God's going to go, oh, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. No, God sent His Son for those people. That means you and me. God did not send Christ to die in order to be able to love us. He loved us and therefore sent His Son to die. Love preceded the action. Love is the cause of the action. God doesn't respond to anything. Do you realize how weak that makes God sound? Well, God knew and God did this, so God did. You sure about that? That's never true anywhere. Not in Scripture. Not unless my Bible's missing pages. I've got a lot of Bibles, they all say the same thing. God proactively does. He is causal in everything He does. If He's not, then you can't believe Genesis 1. God created. Why? Because He was responding to something? No, because He's God. God loved Why? Because he's responding to something? No, because he's God. It's always true. He's causal in his love. Because of his loveliness, he loves us and saves us. Secondly, it is not earned love. It is given and gracious love. I love how God reminds the nation of Israel about this truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because... So much for pride, Nicodemus. So much for thinking you're something because of your Jewishness. So much, nation of Israel, for thinking that. God says, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because causal love, gracious love, the Lord loved you, He says. But because the Lord loved you, Israel, that's why He's done what He has done. And what did He do? The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. John 3.16 God loved. First, God loved graciously. It cannot be earned. It is not responsive. It is primary and causal. God instigates our faith by love. Because of love. He does not love because we have done or are 
anything. We have done nothing except rebel and sin against Him. And yet He loved. It is not disposable love. It's essential to God's very being. We can't look at this and say, well, you know, there's other ways around this. No. No, the love of God is not disposable. It is absolutely essential love. Essential to God's very being. It is who He is. Omnipotently loving. And we shouldn't really be surprised at this. This is not new. It's what He explained to Moses back all the way in Exodus 34. Verses 6 through 8. Moses asked to see the glory of God. God says, no man sees that and lives, Moses. Nobody. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and keep your face away from me. And when I pass by, you won't see with the eye, but you'll hear with the ear, and then you will see and know me. Well, that's got to be a... I mean, that's, that, that is a billing, that is an event that cannot be overstated or oversold. God says, just wait here, Moses. I'll come by and you'll hear. What does God say to Moses? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's who God is. For God, in His omnipotent love, so loved the world. Nicodemus knows Exodus 34. I can promise you Nicodemus probably have the capacity to wake up in the middle of the night reciting Deuteronomy 34 in his sleep. This was seminal and pivotal to Israel's existence. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, as the teacher of Israel, I promise you, Nicodemus knows Deuteronomy 34 like the back of his hand. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, It was one thing for Moses to hide his face in the cleft of the rock and he couldn't look at God. But I who stand before you am the incarnation of the love of God. What Moses longed to see, you are seeing. Nicodemus would also have been familiar, very familiar with Israel's history with the, with the prophet Hosea. By the way, what a great book. Read Hosea this week. Easy read. Profound truth. He, Hosea 11.1 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. They came. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and Burning incense to idols, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. 
I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man with bonds of love. How many of us, before we came to know the love of God, experienced the love of God? Every one of us. Because we were not destroyed the moment we were conceived, which we should have been because of our sin. God patiently led us with cords of love. Just like He did for Israel. What did Israel do to deserve that? Oh, oh, they did everything to test it, but nothing to deserve it. Yet God loved them. And you know the story. Hosea, because God says, Hosea, I want you to learn what my love for Israel is like. So go take yourself a wife of ill repute. Hosea does, and he marries Gomer, and she leaves for another man. And God says, go get her and bring her back. Hosea does, brings her back. She leaves again. God says, go get her and bring her back. Hosea goes and gets her and brings her back. And God says, now how does that feel, Hosea? That's like my love for Israel. They keep going after all these idols. They keep prostituting themselves before these idols. But I have loved them with everlasting love. And I will bring them to myself. What love? And this is the love that Jesus is speaking now to Nicodemus. For God, so God loved. So God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we didn't even make it to the world. But we did have some great material to chew on when it comes to the love of God. May God... Use this truth, this, that simple opening statement to fuel your thoughts this week, to draw you to assurance in Christ. Maybe for some of you, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time.